Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 19. We are reading verses 16 through 30. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would give us understanding, that you incline our hearts to the truth and you reveal yourself plainly to us this morning, that we know what it is to follow after our Lord Jesus. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. 
Through the weeks of Lent, we are now in week five. We have considered what it means to hear Jesus' command, his invitation, his summons to follow him from the Gospel of Matthew. And so today we find ourselves in chapter 19 where Jesus encounters a young man who has an incredible amount of possessions. And he summons him, calls him to follow him. And we learn that he goes away sorrowful that he could not receive the command of our Lord Jesus. In his notebook, Mark Twain jotted down this thought. He says, some men worship rank, some worship heroes, and some worship power. Some worship God. And over these ideals, they dispute and cannot unite. But they all worship money. Twain observed one common devotion amongst people, despite creed or class, and that was the love of money. He says this is the one uniting factor amongst human beings. And certainly we understand that our Lord Jesus had similar comments when he speaks of the power of mammon. Mammon is an old word that simply is the combination of money and possessions, that it's not just cash in your account, it's also what you own, it's what is under your control, and that the worship of mammon and the love of it is a pervasive problem in the world, and it always has been, whether we're referring to the 1800s or the first century or to several centuries in front of that. The love of money has presented the Christian community with its own particular crisis, And it's crucial for us to deal with it. Because we see here in Matthew 19 that actually the love of great possessions keeps a young man from hearing the command of Jesus. And that is that our possessions can actually make us resistant to Jesus. Because this command to follow me, we've said, is the beginning and it's the boundary. It's the center and it's also the circumference of everything that God will command us in the Christian life. And yet money and the love of mammon can make us not hear it, that will turn away from it. And so in Matthew 19, this rich young man comes to Jesus and he asks him a good question. He asks, what does it look like to have a life that will be approved by God? After some initial dialogue, Jesus then says this, if you would be perfect... Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. With the question answered, sadly and silently, the man departs from Jesus. He leaves his presence. He chose the security of his possessions over the uncertainty of following Jesus. He wanted one thing more than he wanted the other, despite coming and asking the question. And so it's crucial for us this morning to answer this question. In particular, what is it about possessions, especially abundant possessions, that make us resistant to Jesus' call? What power do possessions gain over us that keep us from hearing the life-giving call of the Master? Now, before we answer that question, let me give one important qualification. Because it's convenient for many of us, and we can be incentivized to approach this passage as if it doesn't address us. 
All we simply have to do is say, well, I'm not a rich man. So Jesus is not speaking to me here. This doesn't apply because I don't fall into this economic class. It's possible to say that. It's important for us to consider two things. The first is by first century standards, we all fall into the incredibly wealthy, lavishly rich category of life. But I think the second is actually more important. John Calvin commenting on this passage, listen carefully to what he said. It's a true saying that under coarse and rude attire, there often dwells a heart of purple, while sometimes under silk and purple is hid a simple humility. Purple was the sign of royalty in Calvin's world. And so he recognizes that it's very possible to live in humble circumstances and yet have a purple heart. That is to be one who loves money and possessions. Even though you don't have it, you're envious and covetous of it. And so you're actually in the same trap that we find this rich young man. And then it's possible to have incredible possessions and not be possessed by them, but rather to have a heart of humility. And so, friends, the key issue for us as we read Matthew 19 is not how much we have, but it's how do we love what we have and how content are we with what we have and with what God has entrusted to our care and does what we possess possess us in a way that leads us away from Jesus where we can't hear his basic fundamental command. And so let's answer the question this morning. What is it about possessions, especially abundant possessions, that makes us resistant to Jesus' call? Three things that we find here in Matthew 19. And the first is that our possessions can warp our self-perception. You note that Jesus engages the young man. He gives him an answer to his question. He says that you just to keep the commandments. And then the young man asks, well, which one? And then if you follow in verse 18, Jesus enumerates the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is Jesus' enumeration of the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and then he reverts back to the fifth commandment, and then he caps it all off by drawing on the resources of Leviticus 19 to state the sum of the law that we're to love neighbor as self. Many people have asked, why did Jesus just choose these commandments to reiterate? It's very possible that Jesus had very specific reason, knowing this man's heart, to speak these particular commands to him. The astonishing thing is not Jesus' knowledge or understanding of the heart, but rather the man's response to this. Because what he says in verse 20, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And this is revealing of the incredibly deceptive power of possessions. Where our possessions make us strong, our possessions convince us that we are not weak and feeble. They fill us with a pride and a vanity and a boasting that this young man shared in. Because you see, there's something important to note here about the world of the first century. That the rich in the world of the first century lived in a subsistence economy. It's not like the economy we share in today. 
You see, today, someone can gain incredible possessions and riches, and it actually benefits the whole society around them. That was not the case in the first century. That the rich often became rich off the back of others. They benefited from impoverishing other people in the subsistence economy. And so it was well known that the rich were often sometimes the biggest scoundrels in the entire society. And this rich man is confronted by Jesus with the commands to love neighbor, and that is no accident, friends. Jesus is confronting him about the methodology of his riches, about how he came to such great possessions, that this man had been abusing neighbor, impoverishing peasant farmers most likely, in order to gain the dollar for himself. This was what this man's life was consumed with. And here he is resisting the law of God, saying that he's kept it all. He keeps it all at a distance. He has a formal knowledge of it. He understands it. But the radical work of Jesus to intensify the law and purify it, as we see in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, the man is resisting and he's not allowing God to search him and know him. Rather, he's deceived by the pride and the vanity and the boasting that he has gained from an approval that he has on the horizontal plane of life. And this is what riches and possessions can purchase for us. They can purchase a standing with other people on that horizontal plane. But as that horizontal plane becomes increasingly important, we forget the vertical plane, the judgment of God and His evaluation of us. And we refuse to see it. And this young man is refusing to see it. He's incredibly deceived. Jesus is saying that his sins are apparent. That you need to turn from these things. This is the good thing that you needed to do. But he's caught up in the horizontal and he's forgotten the vertical. Money and possessions keep us from seeing ourselves as God sees us. And we buy into another evaluation. We have the wrong self-perception that it's in God's light that we actually see in no light. But yet he's chosen another light to guide him and understand himself. And friends, this is where it's so important in the Christian life. Wherever we may fall in social or economic status, that we always remain open to self-examination and confession. People, times, people oftentimes ask me, Chuck, why are you so incredibly repetitive? There are a thousand ways to answer that question. But one of the things that I'm asked about, about being repetitive, is why do you encourage me in my spirituality to always begin with the confession of sins? And then why when we're in corporate worship on Sunday does the service always go straight after a big hymn of praise to the confession of sin? And friends, because it's at the core of the gospel truth to examine ourselves and to be known by God, to join with David and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know all of my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. That's not a one-time activity in life. You don't get to pass through that in one moment and then leave it behind. That this is the constant activity of the Christian, to be searched and known by God so that we can then know ourselves. The only true knowledge of yourself that you'll ever have is when God properly evaluates you and makes you known. 
And friends, that's why the repetition. It is to find then on the other side of that searching the grace of God that forgives and provides balm and heals us. That we not be self-deceived. People, of course, will say, but Chuck, when we do these things, when we confess our sins and, and we observe that awful moment of silence that's so awkward. I know none of you think that. That's not appealing to the broader culture. And friends, that's really the last of our concerns. Because the last of our concerns is to define worship by entertainment. And perhaps the first of our concerns is to define worship as a spiritual exercise. Where we are spiritually exercising ourselves. We are working ourselves out in the presence of God. And so that moment of silence is not about having a high liturgy, but it's allowing you to do business with God and for God's Spirit to search you and to strike you and make plain to you. And so that from this one moment in the week on Sunday, the first day of the week, you're then able to orient that this is what every day is to look like. Friends, this is the way to true self-perception, whatever our possessions, whatever our riches. And this is where this man fails. His riches deceive him. The second piece of this, though, that's what's so important for us as to why riches, and especially abundant riches, can deceive us, is that our love of possessions divides our priorities. You'll notice that in verse 21, after the young man makes his brazen comment to Jesus, all these things I have done, self-deceived, Jesus then turns and says one more thing to him. If you would be perfect, now this word perfect is a difficult one for us because in the Western world it means that we are without moral flaw. In Jesus' world of the first century, picking up on the Old Testament, what this means is someone who is wholeheartedly committed to loving and serving God. So if you'd be wholeheartedly committed, if you would have an undivided heart, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This was Jesus' invitation to the man. And when he tells him to sell his possessions, it's a very specific command to a man who was rich off of graft and greed. He was like Matthew the tax collector. And most likely this was Jesus referring to the fact that the man needed to go restore the wrongs that he had done. This was most likely an invitation in that direction. And then he was to follow Jesus. But he couldn't do it. You see, he sought something from God. He came asking a question about the life of the age to come. But then he couldn't do this. He didn't want this. And you can see here the disease of this rich young man. He wanted the life of the age to come. He wanted the teachings of Jesus. For these things to be one possession amongst his many other possessions. He was interested in spiritual things, but he wanted it to be a commitment, not the commitment of his life. He wanted it to be one good amongst his many goods. And friends, Jesus doesn't negotiate like this with us. He doesn't enter into this brokering that we want to do, where we want him to be one possession amongst our many possessions. We want him to be one item on a list of priorities. Jesus demands to be the list. He demands to be the commitment. He is the possession that we hold that then directs all our other possessions. 
And yet this rich young man was wanting to negotiate that out. And he couldn't hear the center and the circumference, the beginning and the boundary of all of the Christian life to come and follow Jesus. He was resistant because ultimately his heart was divided. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 6, that we can't have two masters. And so suddenly it becomes clear that the man who did not recognize that he had sinned against the neighbor, Jesus drives a step deeper. Jesus understood that he had broken the fifth through the tenth commandment, and then he will strike at the heart of it all and reveal that he's also broken the first, that his self-perception was off, and Jesus now reveals him as an idolater, one who had other gods, other masters, and that Jesus' call to follow him was a restatement of the first commandment. And he resisted. What did he lack? Everything. He had so much under his mastery and under his control. But there are things that money can't buy. And he lacked everything. In the middle of his riches, he was poor and he was miserable. Because he was possessed by what he owned. And he doesn't see that he has a divided heart. And he goes away sorrowful. And friends, this is the incredible threat of possessions. Is that they leave us with a divided heart. The final thing that we see here though. About why possessions and especially abundant possessions and the love of them is so dangerous, and why it keeps us from hearing Jesus, is that our love of possessions distracts us from our true inheritance. After the man leaves Jesus, Jesus enters into a conversation with his small group, his disciples. He begins talking to them about the difficulty of the rich entering into the kingdom. And then Peter asks the question, well, we've left everything, so what are we going to get? Then verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And friends, this is the deceitfulness of riches, is that it draws us away from this picture that Jesus cast in front of us. That salvation that Jesus offers is not simply pie in the sky in which we float up on a cloud and play a harp harp forever. This is not what Jesus has in mind. And he uses a word that is so provocative and interesting. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. It's translated for us here in the new world. But literally, the ESV has a note for you. It's in the regeneration. That is in the recreation. He is speaking of the great day when he will return. And he will be established upon his throne on the earth. And he will rule over all things. And all things will be under his dominion. The last enemy called death will be defeated. All things will be under his feet. And the world will be made right. Creation restored. 
all the evil and the corruption scrubbed clean and removed by God's judging and refining fires. And his people will inherit that earth. This is what Jesus meant when he said the meek shall inherit the earth. It's not a spiritual cloud. In the recreation of all things. And Jesus is welcoming us in our imagination to dream about what the creation corrected would look like. That little picture we get on the first pages of the Bible before sin entered into the world. That's what Jesus says he's restoring and he's renewing. And he's also even excelling that. That's what's on offer in front of us. And friends, what happens with riches is we get consumed with the present. We forget the future tense of the promises because we're so consumed with the present. And our possessions and our money give us so many things to worry about and to be anxious over. And we get caught up in the stock market or we get caught up in what others think of what we possess, what car we drive, what homes we own, what clothes we wear. And on and on and on and on goes the list. And this is when our possessions have us. And they have us in the grip. And they distract us from what is truly important, the life of the world to come. And Jesus is saying to the disciples that it is worth giving up all of these other things to gain a hundredfold of what's coming. And oftentimes I think when Christians are captivated by riches, it's because of an impoverished imagination that we can't think about what a hundredfold looks like. We get so captivated with the creation as it is, we can't even imagine the hundredfold, the purified, the beauty, God dwelling with people, the richness of relationships, the freedom from a divided heart. We can't even get our minds around that. And so we settle, as C.S. Lewis says, for making mud patties rather than a holiday at the shore. And friends, the holiday at the shore is the recreation of all things. And so don't settle for what riches can provide you when they distract you from a true inheritance. Possessions possess that ability. And then when you look at all this, you naturally ask the question, well, is there any hope? We all know the power of possessions. We know the power of a divided heart. Whether we have the possessions or not, we know what it is to be in love with them and want them and to be envious of them. Is there any hope? This is what the disciples asked Jesus as well. Who then can be saved? <laughs> Who can be saved? Jesus' answer, short and profound. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That it's only by the mysterious and miraculous work of God that the human heart answers the call to follow Jesus. It's only by the mysterious and miraculous work of God that we set down those other things that can distract us and call us and divide us and that we set after following Jesus. And that happens to rich and poor alike. And each have their struggles and each have their excuses. But it is the, possi the possible impossibility because if left to ourselves, we will not follow. But with God, all these things are possible. And friends, we're dependent upon the grace and the mercy of God to rescue us 
That we be drawn to that vision of the regeneration of all things. That we be drawn to an undivided heart. To have one commitment and to will one thing. That we not be self-deceived and hide in front of God. That's the work of this God. To free us from all these things. And so let's ask him to do it. Let's pray. Father, we recognize the incredible capacity that our possessions, the abundance of our possessions, and the love of these possessions, of mammon that it has over our lives. We acknowledge it today, and we ask that you would search us and know us, that you reveal the truth to us, about us, that in your light we would see this light and we would turn and that we would find greater riches in our Lord Jesus and that we would come to him today and we would lay down these things and that we would follow after him. Keep us from the dreadful and sad mistake that this young man makes in going away sorrowful. And rather would we know that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and hid and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. And so God direct us to this kind of faith we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand